Newsflash LT, the 2016 Wellness Summit is confirmed. Pop into your diary and get your tickets now at the super early bird rate. Be there on September 10th and 11th in Melbourne with 1,000 other like-minded wellness enthusiasts. And for a limited time, purchase your ticket at this incredible rate. Up until Christmas Day, five Wellness Summit tickets are yours for the price of two. That's better than two for one. That's two and a half for one. Bring a leg, bring an arm, bring your wellness tribe for less than 120 bucks per ticket for a never-seen-before format of the Summit. And even better, every ticket purchased before Christmas goes into an incredible draw to win one ticket to the 2016 Wellness Breakthrough. I cannot believe we're actually giving this away. It's worth $3,000. Get excited, people. Get very excited. To get access to the biggest and best wellness summit ever and enter this special Christmas draw, go to thewellnesssummit.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts, Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damien Kristoff. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is the Wellness Guy Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into your lives. And I've just made it. I'm going to be on this podcast. I almost didn't make it to this podcast, guys, uh, and appreciate for waiting for me. But uh, we got someone special, Brett, uh, for us to be all three of us on. And we're really excited about this. Brett said to us that uh, this um, person that, that's going to be on the call today is just absolutely sensational. And uh, we're looking forward to it because it's going to be all about resilience. Yeah. So look, I was doing some, uh, some research recently. I was doing some professional development and, uh, and this course that I was involved in was fantastic. And it was all about mental well-being and resilience, which I just was drawn to. I thought that's a fantastic topic, particularly the resilience aspect of it. I think is fascinating and so important for us as adults. And also when you're looking at bringing up kids and, and so I was just really fascinated in the topic and it was talking about reducing strength and anxiety cultivating well-being and happiness, performing at your best. And those are all sort of things that I was pretty interested in. And the thing I loved about it is it really talked about it from a from a scientific perspective. It talked about the psychology behind it. It talked about the neurobiology behind it. And so I just thought it was a fantastic resource. And I thought this is going to be a fantastic conversation for us to have on the Wellness Guys. So I thought we had to get Michelle McQuaid on. So welcome to the show, Michelle. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So the course was fantastic, Michelle. Thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed it. So tell us a little bit about let's let's get right into it. You know, what what is mental well-being and resilience? Yeah, look, I think traditionally we've often thought about resilience as that ability for us to bounce back from adversities. Um, and that's definitely part of it. But I think increasingly what we're uh, experiencing in the science and what people are really wanting from their lives is if we just keep bouncing back all the time, that becomes pretty exhausting and hard to sustain after a while. So perhaps instead, if we think about resilience as our ability to navigate with confidence the highs and lows that every life experiences, Um, so that we can lean in to what's in front of us, be that uh, a great opportunity that's full of excitement and joy for us or something that's much more challenging or real experiences of stress or grief, heartbreak in our lives, to know that each and every one of those moments has opportunities for growth, for development, for learning from us. So we think about resilience and well-being as our ability more to feel good and to function effectively as we navigate life's highs and lows. I think that kind of broadens perhaps some of the definitions we've traditionally thought about in these areas. Oh, I love it, Michelle. Oh, I just heard myself again. I love doing that, actually. I could do that all day. Oh, no, myself. here we go. Here we go. <laughs> hey, Michelle. Someone put on my mute. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's all beginning. It's all beginning. Uh, Michelle, how how did you get into this in such a big way? Because you've got such a massive presence. You're online. You're everywhere. You're in magazines. You're in the Huffington Post. You're all over the place. How, what what has made this such a fascinating topic for you? Yeah, look, when I was a little kid and adults used to say to you as they do, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I used to say, I want to be happy. And they'd look at me as I kind of misunderstood the question and go, no, 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 <laughs> what are you going to do with your life when you grow up? And I said, well, I want to be happy, you know. Um, and that seemed, of course, as a kid, such a simple idea. It's like I was going to be a fireman or an astronaut. I was just going to be happy. How hard could it be? Uh, and, you know, I started out, uh, you know, leaving school. I'd done pretty well at school, went down that path of achievement, trying to get good jobs, uh, worked my way up corporate ladders. And I did okay. But the the further up I got, I realized it really wasn't making me that much happier. So I decided perhaps I needed more pleasure and indulgence in my life. So I started spending all that money I was earning in all sorts of luxurious ways, had some great fun times, but again, noticed after a while that the happiness didn't really tend to stay. Um, so I decided maybe I needed more love in my life. I got married. I had a first child, Charlie, uh, and that was all goodness as well. But there was a point around 2007 where we ended up in uh, New York. I was working as a global brand director uh, for a very large firm there. Um, Charlie was about four years old and marriage was good. I was in good physical health and it was just getting harder and harder every morning to drag myself out of bed and find the energy to keep up with the life that I was living. There was nothing wrong but there wasn't anything that was exceptionally right either and I know that can be hard to imagine except for the fact that we know that less than 30% of people in the world today really describe themselves as flourishing and for most of us we're living those kind of quiet lives of desperation much like I described for myself where we're getting by but we're really not perhaps showing up with the energy, the enthusiasm, the hope for life that we know that we're capable of. And so I had a moment of going, well, was this just a silly childhood dream like being an astronaut and the idea of ever being happy was just far-fetched and this is what being a grown-up was all about? Or was there something I was missing? And around that time in New York, uh, a gentleman was getting a lot of publicity in the media. His name was Professor Tel Ben-Shahar. And he was getting a lot of publicity because he was teaching the most popular course on campus at Harvard University. And that course was positive psychology. And it was the first time I had any inkling there could be a science to well-being, to happiness, to how we show up in our lives. And for me, that was just um, mind-opening to go, okay, well, what is science learning about how we flourish more consistently? So I started reading everything I could get my hands on. I convinced my bosses at the organisation to let me go and do my master's in positive psychology. I was fortunate to be able to do that with the field's founder, Professor Martin Seligman. And as I went through that experience, I realised that perhaps happiness as a goal for my life was actually selling myself short. I was so sure that that was going to be the answer, just be happier. And I think it's true for so many of us. 
What I realized, though, as I learned more about how my brain works, how I do lean more confidently into the good times and the hard times in my life, was there was something much richer to play for. And this was this idea of this well-being, um, the resilience that it fueled within me. So instead of just looking for the happy option all the time, I could show up for life's difficult moments and know I had the knowledge, the tools, the support to navigate my way through those and to get the learning that sometimes only comes from difficult experiences. So that was kind of my journey and since about 2008, I guess it's been my challenge to see how much of it can I live each day and how much of it can I share with others as I do it. You know, it's just such an interesting thing when you talk about uh, resiliency and I was, I was wondering where you were going because you mentioned that you want to be happy, but resilience is almost sometimes um, to a lot of people means that you actually have to go through the hardships. Um, you work with a lot of corporations and um, do you find, what what are you finding right now is the most difficult things that people are going through um, in the corporate jobs? Because I find that, you know, when my dad uh, was in, you know, in that corporate space, most of the time it's more about staying with one company for a long period of time. But now it's about people are with the technology that we actually have that are jumping jobs or just moving because they're looking for that next thing. Yeah. Um, so what what are some of the suggestions that you have for these people who are looking for that next thing? How do they find that resiliency to be able to kind of have that satisfaction but at the same time being able to, um, you, know, uh, you know, fulfill their purpose in life, I guess? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. I think since um, the global financial crisis back in 2008, 2009, Business has really changed uh, again and I think, you know, the new normal now is that business is very uncertain. It's very hard to predict. We're not following the usual economic sort of cycles that we were used to before, you know. Every other day there's some fear that a country is about to hit recession again. So I think business now is just more dynamic it's more complex and it's more uncertain than it's ever been before and that creates a lot of stress and anxiety for people because it's difficult to predict it's difficult to find a steady path it's hard to know if your profession will still be a profession that's sought after you know a decade for now and what does that mean for your career prospects as you've touched on people are moving more so if we're going to take that as the new normal that that's the environment most of us are finding ourselves in then how do we make sure we can successfully as we can for ourselves but also for the other people around us be they our family our friends our colleagues because we know that things like well-being uh, happiness depression are highly contagious as well so um, there's a party for us but also the part for others um, one of the things that I really loved out of positive psychology that made a big difference for me and it's what I teach in a lot of workplaces is kind of where's the roadmap for doing this like if I'm going to think about this how do I organize my thoughts in terms of what I'm going to do, the kind of skills I might want to have, where's my toolbox to reach into as I go through these moments? And one of the most popular theories in well-being in recent years is that proposed by my professor Martin Seligman, and he believes in order to consistently flourish, we need the right balance of heartfelt positive emotions, so not the kind of fake smiles, uh, positive thoughts for the sake of positive thoughts, but kind of genuine positivity, and to find the right balance between the stress and negative because again, don't want to be all positivity or we'll float away to la la land, which isn't helpful either. Um, and a bit of negativity is sometimes the best ways to learn. So heartfelt positivity, 
Engagement, do we have a chance to do more of what we do best each day, to use our strengths, the things we're good at and actually enjoy doing in our job? And even just 10 minutes a day of doing a little bit of what you do best, we find can make a big difference to people's levels of confidence, energy, their overall well-being. And the third is relationships. More than anything else, what we've seen in the research, even more than the eat, move, sleep stuff, what impacts our well-being most is our relationships with other people. So do we know how to genuinely connect, even in small moments, really tiny moments in our day that we're already having, but with just a little more mindfulness and presence as we do them to create a bit more heartfelt connection with others? Um, meaning, do we feel like what we're doing has some positive, makes some positive difference somewhere along the line? Um, we know the number one thing people want in their jobs more than money, job security, flexibility, opportunities, is a sense of meaning and purpose in their work. And the fifth one is uh, accomplishment. So we're born creatures of progress. It's how we survive as a species. So we fit, need to feel like what we do, uh, uh, what we're trying to achieve can actually be done, that there's a sense of hope that's fueling our work uh, and that sense of growth and learning as we go. And so he calls this PERMA simply because each step starts with one of those letters. Um, I increasingly teach it with a H on the end, which is the eat, move, sleep stuff, because I do think that's a really important part of it. And for me, I've certainly found they're the hygiene factors of being able to show up to my work with the kind of energy, uh, engagement, confidence that I want to have to achieve what matters most to me. Nice. I love that, Michelle. It's it's such a great little acronym to be able to use and to start thinking about all those different areas. Now, you know, it seems like what we're kind of talking about here is almost using resilience or resilience almost as a preventative measure rather than as a as a treatment. You know, it's, it's rather than waiting until things fall apart, is trying to, to deal with it before then so that you're getting yourself into a good situation so that, you know, when those challenges come along, then perhaps you smooth out the bumps a little bit. And, you know, obviously using that that positivity and, and that balance between the you know the stress and the positivity to create an environment where you deal with those challenges better when they do come along. Is that am I right there? Is that what we're talking about? Absolutely. Um, some of the research from Professor Barbara Fredrickson at the University of North Carolina, who particularly studies this impact of heartfelt positivity, things like joy, awe, interest, pride, gratitude as we're going about our days. <clears throat> Her research has found that it's a bit like money in the bank for a rainy day. The more we're experiencing these kind of emotions, uh, all of which again come from that sense of engagement in our work, the relationships we have, the meaning we have, what we're accomplishing, actually helps to build our resources over time. So she's found that it helps to make us more intellectually resourceful. Uh, we learn more, we're more intelligent. It makes us more physically resourceful because there's less stress, less cortisol stress. Uh, streaming through our bodies so we're generally healthier, our immune system's working better, makes us more socially resourceful. So again, if you think about these as preventative measures, if we're investing in these things up front, then when challenge strikes, we've got more people to draw on to help us or support us or encourage us forward. Um, and it also uh, makes us more psychological resource, psychologically resourceful. So that piece where the stress, perhaps the anxiety doesn't weigh quite so heavily on us because we feel like we've got 
got that money in the bank to navigate those more challenging experiences. Again, it doesn't mean to say we won't still feel them in all of their glory. Um, I had my father passed away earlier this year and so we've been going through that natural cycle of grief and for all the world I wouldn't want to not have had those experiences because it's part of honouring his life and remembering him and connecting to him. And so to think at this stage I'm going to be flourishing while you're going through a very natural growth cycle of grief isn't a realistic expectation but am I able to function better during this time than I might have been otherwise? Absolutely because those resources are there for me to draw on. It's really nice to uh, to hear that uh, Michelle because there's often an expectation that people shouldn't grieve and um, I heard just yesterday and it was just a, it was a flying passing comment um, that somebody made as they know that somebody is dying and it's the mother of somebody else that's dying. And, and the comment was that, that, that the, this lady said was, well, he's a guy, he won't be too emotional about it, but I'm a girl and so I'm very emotional about it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like that's a total ignorance of how far we've come with regards Absolutely. to <laughs> understanding boys and girls, guys and, you know, I just it really threw me. And, uh, and I just wondered whether or not you notice a difference now compared to, say, 10 years ago with regards to um, how both men and women are dealing with, uh, with change and shift and, uh, and, I suppose, flourishing. Yeah, look, I think there's a huge piece around this still about the permission we feel uh, for how we express ourselves and how we show up in the world based on gender. Um, it's really interesting when I teach a lot of these skills in rooms with men and women, both sexes get it, both can absolutely benefit from the very tested, practical little steps you can take in any of these areas. But the women often in workplaces are like sponges for it. <laughs> there's just an extra piece for them. And what I figured out working with a lot of female leaders as we use this work in particular is it seems for them to give them a permission at work to value perhaps some of the softer sides of themselves that they haven't always felt like workplaces um, allowed them to be, that they felt they kind of had to squash down or leave it, leave at home or leave at the door rather than take into the office. Um, the really interesting thing is uh, the more you teach it to women in workplaces, the more the men start to admit that they want that as well. <laughs> I think all of us yearn to be able to show up in our lives with some sense of authenticity and uh, honouring who we really are. But I think in workplaces what I see is perhaps that need is a little more heightened or women are perhaps quicker to articulate it, but it's absolutely the same need in both. I think what you're describing outside of work is a really interesting one where perhaps women feel they have more permission to feel like through the stages of grief or saying goodbye to a loved one in that situation. I absolutely believe that the man you're describing in that situation experiences the same grief as well, but whether he feels he has permission in that situation to share that I think is a really different thing. So I think there's some growing recognition and I'm really just seeing it starting to emerge that actually we all yearn to be able to be authentic in order to feel like we're flourishing and we can be the best kind of person that we can be and perhaps we're starting to appreciate how important it is to give ourselves and each other the permission to be able to do that in whatever way feels genuine and right for each person. You know, that brings an interesting um, point to the resilience. And my, um, I have a big passion on this and, and just learning it. But what does the science say? Is, is it that the resilience is actually 
in our genetics, is it in our DNA, or is it something that we learned? And if it is something that we learn through our experiences in life, what part, what stage is the most influential? Oh, great question. Look, I think there's definitely an element of nature and nurture um, involved in this. I mean, the reality is we've survived as a species this long because there are certain parts of resilience that are innate to us. Um, one of the biggest challenges we actually find for resilience today is that some of the ways we have evolved as a species, the way our brains have been wired over time, that served us really well when we lived out on the savannah and were perhaps about to be attacked by a saber-toothed tiger, um, really do us a disservice in today's modern world. Um, nature has not, in this case, quite kept up uh, with the environments in which we're living. And a really simple example of that is the negativity bias which researchers have discovered our brains are wired with. So, you know, back in the day where, you know, a life and death situation really was life and death, <laughs> you know, the saber-toothed tiger's coming at you, you want your brain to be particularly alert to notice those uh, dangerous moments in your environment and to be ready to fight, flee or freeze and for all the parts of your body to respond accordingly. It's quite amazing when you look at what really happens to our bodies in those moments, even to this day. The challenge is in the modern environment, particularly modern workplaces, not too many saber-toothed tigers. You might encounter the odd one, but they're not that frequent. But our brain doesn't distinguish with this negativity bias between a real life-threatening experience and the little things that often create anxiety for us during the day. So there's negativity bias often causes us to focus more on the things that are going wrong, what's not working, what we don't like, who we don't like, <laughs> things that we're worried about might not work out next. And that's what's uh, really threatening a lot of our resilience or making it so difficult uh, in this day and age. So a large part of what we have to do then is the nurture piece and a lot of the workshops that I do, a lot of the research uh, that uh, scientists are trying to figure out is how do we retrain the brain? Because we know our brains are capable of learning our whole lives long. So how do we retrain that negativity bias? Not to get rid of it in any way, so we want it, it has a really important healthy functioning for us, but to balance us out to create uh, to better cope with what modern life throws at us each day. So let's talk about that ratio, Michelle, because I know you spoke about that in the course. And, and as you said, you can't be just all positive. You can't just be all negative. But, but there seems to be a ratio where, uh, where people tend to thrive the best. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and look, this is an area still under hot debate and we're learning more about it. I think um, part of what I'm finding anyway through all the science on well-being is one of the best outcomes at the moment is it's making us more intelligent consumers of science. So what science really tells us is what works for some of the people some of the time. Um, I think often what we're really looking for is the magic bullet, the proven solution, and none of it is. Good science is never proven. Um, what we're learning so far on the ratio is you're absolutely right just like you don't want all heartfelt positivity a bit like having all levity you'd float away into the sky and you don't want all heart straining negativity a bit like too much gravity leaves us flat on the ground and unable to get up you want the right balance between the two and just like levity and gravity when you've got the right balance we move through this world beautifully <laughs> um, and so some of the researchers suggested that we might want around three heartfelt positive experiences experiences for every one heart-straining negative experience. But it seems as we get older, perhaps we need a little bit more of the heartfelt positivity. 
And probably I would say, and this is true of most of these uh, positive psychology interventions, more important that's what's worked for some of the people some of the time in the research is figuring out what works best for you. So thinking about, you know, on your best days, how much heartfelt positivity have you experienced? And what's been creating that for you? How could you sprinkle a bit more of that into tomorrow? And on your most challenging days, what's creating the heart-straining negativity for you? And is it healthy negativity where there's growth and development? Or is it just overwhelming negativity that's maybe not serving you so well? And what can you do to either better avoid it, navigate around it, or prepare yourself for it so it doesn't have such an impact? And you can track this really easily online. It's completely free at positivityratio.com. Takes about two minutes. You can do it at the end of the day, see how much positivity and negativity you've had. And we recommend doing it for about two weeks so one day doesn't throw you too far one way or the other. Michelle, these are great pearls. There's some amazing stuff there. I'm actually going to go to that website and uh, and check that out because I was watching this TV show the other day, Redesign My Brain with um yes, yeah. with Todd Sampson. Todd, and yeah, it's fantastic. Do you know Todd? Have you have you met Todd? I haven't met Todd personally, but I'm a huge fan of that series. I think he does a great job at taking the science and making it super accessible. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I I loved it. So I actually made my son Jackson sit down and watch it with me because uh, we just you know it fascinates us how you can change your brain. But he has a positivity bias so he believes he believes that nothing bad is going to happen to him almost yeah. um, he's 95% positive and 5% negative and so obviously that could set him up for disaster I suppose almost as much as say somebody who has a massive negativity bias where they feel that everything is going to go wrong and nothing's going to go right and and I know Absolutely. people in both sides of those camps you yeah. know when you do this um positivity um scale when you're the ratio yep. Yep. Are, there, are there any tools there that actually help people uh, learn how to move in a particular direction to be either be more positive or maybe a little bit less ca- or more cautious or you know is there yeah, any, what, the tool what do itself do? is more just for awareness building but if you head on over to my website at michellemcquade.com there's a little free ebook right on the front page that you can get and it walks through each of these pillars and shows you what are the little everyday things that you could do based on what the science is finding to help improve your heartfelt positivity or to manage the heart-straining negativity a little bit better. And there's lots of little videos and things like that. I'm always writing about this sort of stuff, as you guys said at the outset. So there's heaps of free stuff that you can get there. That My big uh, passion is, God, how do you take the science and make it really practical and easy to use? So if that's content you're after, that's probably the easiest place to find it right now. But you're absolutely right. You can have a positivity bias the other way and I think part of this goal of well-being and resilience is really how do we become more psychologically flexible so instead of being too far one way too positive or too far the other way too negative in different situations for different outcomes we might want to achieve we can kind of figure out which way serves us best you know do I need to dial up the positivity right now or maybe I need to dial it back a little bit Um, we talk a lot in the optimism research for example about what we really want to be is realistic optimists. (laughs) If you're just an optimist and you're taking, you know, um, unwarranted risks that are not going to have good outcomes for you, then for all the good that optimism might do, it's going to have a really negative impact. So I think this idea of how do I become, again, more psychologically flexible in my approaches to life by having some knowledge and tools, having some support around me that makes it easier. 
Michelle, you've uh, you've been able to work with some amazing people. Um, you know, you had your professor with and Professor Martin uh, Selgman, and um, I just want to know, like, oftentimes as uh, as listeners, um, you listen to, you know, you read their books or you listen to their podcasts or you see them on television. You you have this bias of them, like they're the perfect <laughs> specimen or like they're the perfect person, and because they teach about positive psychology, they must be positive, and you know, <laughs> their mind, their you know, their stuff together. I would love to know. Um, I think the listeners would love to know. Is you know how does he or even yourself like you know if you're open open to that to be exposed? Is that are you perfect all the time, or are there moments of when you're not you you pull yourself out of those positive psychologies? And how do you get back on it? How do you how fast can you be aware of it and then make the change? Yeah, look, I think it's a great question. Um, one of the best things I found in the positive psychology uh, world and the people who research it and try and practice it is, again, it's this um, hunger for authenticity. Um, and so it's actually the complete opposite of what you might expect. I find that often these people are the ones who are less striving to uh, be positive all the time because they know that that's actually not a healthy thing to do. We know that forcing ourselves to try and be positive more often, um, to try and be happy all the time, generally creates more stress uh, than it does benefits for us. And so, again, there's much more of this sense of authenticity of navigating life the best you can in the moment with what you've got. Uh, being the goal rather than to be happy or positive or upbeat or hopeful um, all the time. And it's amazing how much pressure that alone takes off. We are talking before about giving ourselves permission. When you give yourself permission to just show up to life and be real about what's happening and give it the best shot you can with what you've got, learn from works, learn from what doesn't, God, it takes the pressure off and makes it a lot easier. Um, and I think that's certainly true for me and it's certainly true for uh, people like Marty and many other of the leading researchers in the field I've worked with. Um, I think the trick to being able to do that is Again, having some of the knowledge and tools to draw on and as a result, what I've found personally is the more I've done that, the better my response times get when things aren't heading in the direction I want. <laughs> so if I'm just having a bad day and nothing's quite going to plan, I know that it's I have choice about how I respond in the very next moment and where that's going to take me. Um, when things are going really well and we're having a fantastic moment um, with the kids or something like that, I know I have a choice in that moment about staying in that place a little longer by savouring it or just really mindfully being present where I am. So my response times I've found have gotten much quicker uh, generally, especially a lot of those thoughts about anxious thoughts or feelings of self-doubt or uncertainty um, where they used to sort of spiral me down for uh, hours if not days. I'm much better now in the moment at responding when I hear that, oh God, you're such a loser, you're not good enough, what were you thinking? <laughs> to go, well, hang on, in most cases I'm generally better than I think I am. So let's take a moment here and regroup and see what I'm going to do next. So that's become a much more automatic process over time, um, simply again because I've trained my brain at this stage to be better at some of those things. That said, there is always more to learn as I've found. Every time I think I've got it all nailed, it's like life gives me a new opportunity to see what else I can learn. <laughs> well, I, I think um, it's great. Uh, thanks for being vulnerable and thanks for uh, you know telling us the truth because I think it's really important for our listeners to know that um, we're all human, right? So yes, we might you know we all have our challenges and uh, it's what we do with that challenge and how we move forward from that that's the most important. So thank you for that. And on 
honestly, thank you so much for um, you know being on this call. Thanks for you know, a great interview. I think a lot of our listeners are going to get so much information out of it. What's the best website or best way to connect with you? I know you got three best-selling books. Um, you know, where can people find more information if they really want to find you know learn more about this stuff? Yeah, head on over to michellemcquade.com. You can Google me if you can't remember the URL. It'll pop straight up for you. Again, lots of free pieces there and you can access the books and other things that we've got on. Lots of podcasts I've done with, um, uh, just like this one, with uh, leading researchers around the world on these topics. So if you're wanting to dig in more there, plenty to find. Well, thanks for that. And uh, if you, you know, I know the, the line's a little bit staticky just because of the internet connection, to, but uh, we'll definitely put the link of your website onto our show notes. So just go head on over to thewellnesscouch.com to find this episode and we'll definitely put the link there. Again, Michelle, thank you so much for being on The Wellness Guy Show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So guys, make sure you go to facebook.com. Go to Wellness Guys and The Wellness Couch. Check us out there. Like us there and comment below this particular episode and let, let us know what you think. Share this podcast with your friends and families other strangers you think need a wellness update. I think people will learn a lot from this um, particular episode. And subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, please give us a rating and also leave a comment there on iTunes. Until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guy Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.